anonymous, and that is uh, for the memory of Fanny Freilich Batshlomo, whose yard site is in two nights from now. And I think that we should also, we know the power of prayer. The rabbi gave, wow, such a great uh, lecture. We all know how, how powerful prayer is. And I just want to take one moment and, and make this prayer. We all, we're all familiar with it. <coughs> we obviously have uh, Jews still in uh, exile. We're also uh, in, in somewhat of a spiritual exile. I'm not saying because elections are coming up or anything special, but we do have enemies on all sides. <coughs> the whole world's going crazy. And there's also a, uh, a hurricane. So I hear in, uh, a lot of Jewish people in uh, Miami. Florida, but yeah, you know, look, there's people everywhere. There's people everywhere. So, uh, and as for our brothers in the whole house of Israel who are in distress or captivity on sea or land, may all, the, may the all present have compassion on them and lead them from distress to relief, from darkness to light, from oppression to freedom. Now, swiftly and soon, let us say Amen. Amen. And Sunni Batsar of Shivya, Oindi Bain Biyam, or Bain Biyabasha, and Mokhim Yurakim, Alehem, Yotsiyam, Mitsara, Birvacha, Omefela, Lura, Omishibu Gula, Hashbag Rabizman, Kareev, and Omar, Amen. We know that one of the things that the Rabbanish Loyalam loves the most is Torah. God loves the Jewish people as we saw even in this week's Pasha. You are children of your God. That means that if we are his children then clearly he must be our father. That's obvious. Uh, you don't call somebody a child if you're not, a, you're not their father. <coughs> So we know that God loves the Jewish people. What God also loves, obviously, is His Torah. Uh, and um, it's a love which is uh, tremendously abiding. It never ends. <clears throat> the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what is exactly the Torah? What is it really, you see? What is its nature? What is its essence? And one of the interesting statements that uh, our rabbis tell us, Chazal, is that Talmud Torah connected Kulam. That Talmud Torah, Torah, learning Torah, is weighs as much as all 613 commandments. That's an incredible statement because we know the value of each commandment is awesome. We know that. So imagine there are 612 commandments on one side and there's Torah on the other side of the scale. Yet somehow Torah weighs, or the value of it, is as great as all of them combined. That's an incredible statement, <coughs> you see. And we know that the, our rabbis, the Chazal, they're not given to hyperboles just to make a point. <coughs> if that's what they say, that, then that is the truth. That for some, in some way, Torah itself is the greatest thing of all. And that's what God wants us to be preoccupied with. As it says in Shema Yisrael, and you shall speak in them, what's them? Torah. 
and it shall be that these words will be on your heart, right? And you shall speak about them in your going to sleep, you're getting up, on the way. <coughs> in other words, clearly what the Rabbi Shalom wants is that we should be preoccupied with the Torah. Constantly. You see. <coughs> uh, and of course that's what we, we really pray for that. And so on. So the question of course is, why? What does that mean? What exactly is the Torah that it is so great in God's eyes? <clears throat> well, obviously there's a great deal to speak about that. So I'm going to speak um, and at least try to give you some type of a sense of the Torah itself and why it is so great. <clears throat> and what does it do for us? <clears throat> The interesting thing about that is that when was the Torah given? We know it was given by Matan Torah, Moshe Rabbeinu, but the Torah was created long before the world was created. In fact, there's a medrash that says that Istakob Yeraiso, God looked in the Torah, Ubora Alma, and He created the world. You see, <clears throat> that immediately tells us something very important that God just didn't, so to speak, sit down and say, well, Let's see what I'll do today. No. There is a specific design. There's a plan, clearly, that God has. And that plan is the Torah. And this is what we begin to see. In a certain sense, the Torah is the architectural design of creation. That's really what it is. It's a blueprint where God himself, okay, creates the blueprint because that's really what he did. He created the Torah. The Torah is a nivra, is a created thing. It doesn't coexist with God as much as it is as valuable to God. Nothing coexisted with God. Everything is created, as we will see later, what that means. But certainly the Torah in and of itself uh, is the blueprint. So first he created the blueprint, the architectural designs, and then he, from that, he created everything. And that's very re revealing because what it indicates is that there is clearly a plan to the entire creation. That's what it indicates. So that's the first idea. That Torah in and of itself is a blueprint. It is an exact description of everything. Now it says in Pirkei Ovis, very interesting, it says, Turn it this way, turn it that way. Shekulubah, everything is in it. And the question is, what does that mean? I mean, the Torah itself, how thick is it when you think about that, right? It's not that thick. Yet, according to that Chazal, what that really saying is that every single thing that exists has to be recorded in the Torah. Because, obviously, if that is the blueprint of creation, then clearly, right, that which exists, God, that which God created, must be in the Torah. Because he's getting everything from the Torah. So therefore what we immediately see is that all things that exist, everything, since it's part of the blueprint itself, must have been in some way inscribed in the Torah itself. That's what it means. But when we think about that, we ask ourselves, what does that really mean? 
Well, what it seems to say is that the totality of all reality is in the document called the Torah. That's what it says. That means everything is in it. Every single thing in creation, every idea, every concept, and everything that will be is already written in some way in the Torah itself. Now obviously, the only one who's capable of that is God. Nobody could write a document that is all-inclusive of all reality. You see, uh, yet that's what it says. So we're looking at a document, not only was it written by God, composed by God, authored by God, right? Uh, but it is a document that has everything in it. <clears throat> that is really actually one of the reasons why God says you should involve yourself in learning the Torah. Because everything is there. Why look anywhere else? And so on. But in any case, now we could ask ourselves, well, how is that possible? How could everything in creation be in the Torah? Because when you look at the Torah, you take a Tanakh or just a Torah without the Nach, right? How big is it anyway? What's it got? You know, but, uh, three, four, five hundred thousand words? How could that contain everything that ever existed? And the answer is what's very interesting <clears throat> is that the Torah can be learned or read many different ways. You can read the Torah, Aleph, Beis, Gimel, Dalad, right? In other words, the normal way of the alphabet. That's called Avgad, Aleph, Beis, Gimel, Dalad. So you read the Torah in a normal way. Now, but you can also read the Torah backwards. And that would be called Tashrak, Tovshin, Reish Kuf. In other words, what you could do is, in a certain sense, right, you can... Uh, read everything in the Torah backwards and it would form different words wouldn't it? Obviously so you can have an entire document that is reversed can be reversed you can read it backwards and then it would form different words obviously different words, different sentences that's what would happen and that would obviously include an enormous amount of information now what's interesting is that we don't know what the Torah calls many things. You see, the language of the Torah is unique. So for instance, if we wanted to call something in the Torah, if the Torah wanted to refer to something, let's say, an atom. Well, what's the word atom that the Torah would use to describe the atom? We don't really know. See, of course, Hebrew has made up words. They've coined words obviously in order to be able to speak about them but the language of God is not the language of man so therefore if you read the Torah backwards right then it would indicate a whole different vocabulary that can include incredible amount of information now besides that you can change the punctuation we have punctuation where we have a sentence we have a letter forms words form sentences, right? There's hyphens, there's commas, and so on. What happens if you shifted all the punctuations? And all of a sudden, you decided to end, put a comma somewhere else. You see, that also would change the meaning of many things in the Torah. And you could change the punctuation reading it forwards, or you could change the punctuation reading it backwards, both ways. 
So therefore, like I said, the amount of information that would be disclosed would be enormous. Then you could read the Torah, what's called by its reciprocals. You see, uh, that's called atbash, where the aleph would be switched for its reciprocal at the other end of the alphabet, tough. The bays would be f uh, switched to the shin. It was, it's the reciprocal, the other end of the alphabet, and they would meet somewhere in the middle. Uh, you see? So imagine if a computer could do that. It could take every letter in the Torah and substitute its reciprocal. That's interesting. It'd be a different Torah. It would contain an entirely different vocabulary that refers to who knows what. We don't even know what it refers to because, like I said, we do not know the vocabulary, really, that the Torah necessarily uses for anything. You know, if you have, let's say, Einstein's equals MC squared. Well, how would the Torah phrase that? We don't know. Uh, you see? And so on. So, just by manipulating these kind of things, ultimately, what you're really doing is you are able to include an enormous amount of information. Now, the Torah also can be read differently. It's called Notorican. Notorican is what? A Notorican is a Rosh Hashanah. It's a acrostic, uh, whatever. And what you can have there is, you know, for instance, uh, you'd have the uh, first letter of five words itself spells out a word. You see. <clears throat> so that is another way of giving out an enormous amount of information. What's called Notorican, just by the first letter of the word and the safe tables, the last letter of the word, five words, just the last letters itself makes out a word. You see, there are many ways of expounding the Torah. So that's another way that you would be able to see what's in the Torah. Then there's what's called the skip codes. You see, somebody once went over to the Vilna Goyen and uh, he said to the Vilna Goyen, you say, right, that everything is in the Torah, right? Can you, in act actually, according to the uh, Chazal, everything is alluded to in the word Bracious, just the first word of the Torah, which is astounding. Imagine everything not only is alluded to in the entire wording of the Torah, it's alluded to in the first word Bracious. So he went over to the Vilna Goyen, who obviously was a incredible master, and he said, you know, you say everything is in the first word bracious, or that's what the rabbis teach us. Where is the idea of pidgin haben? You know, we know that a firstborn child, a male, after 30 days is supposed to redeem him. You know, you give the coin money, and he gives back your kid, so to speak. Right? That's pidgin haben. So he asked them, where's pidgin haben in bracious? So the Vilna Goyen, who was able to do this, astounding, he said, not a problem. The word bracious is Bez, Resh, Aleph, Shin, Yud, Tav. Six letters. So all you have to do is read it this way. Ben, Rishon, firstborn son, Aleph, Acha, Shloishim, Yoim, Shin, Yud, Tifte, redeem him. Right? It just rattle right, just rattle that off. That's, that's astounding. You know? In other words, the word bracious is the Rosh Hashanah, or the first letter of the word 
Ben Rishon, Acha Shloishim Yoim, your first son, after 30 days, Tifteh, you have to redeem him. Right in the first word of Rishon, you see? You know? Uh, which is obviously quite amazing. But <clears throat> we see, therefore, that Rosh Tevis is one of the ways you can expound on the Torah. Then there are skip codes. For instance, you start with a letter somewhere, and then you skip, let's say, every 50th letter. What's that letter? Then go again 50, and again 50, and so on. And that spells out a word. <coughs> One of the greatest codes, skip codes, where you, you skip the letters, right, with a certain what's called constant, and it forms a letter. <coughs> But one of the greatest I've ever heard, which is just, uh, uh, it's just uh, very difficult to comprehend this. There was a, a, a very great man, uh, Michal Ber Weissmendel, in the Holocaust. He wrote, out of the depths, in Ametzar, one of the great heroes of the Holocaust, trying to save the Jews and so on, you know. But in any case, he was a brilliant guy. And he was a tremendous in mathematics. Just self-taught. He knew seven languages. You see, I'm just a very brilliant person, even in mathematics. So somebody went to his house, and they were speaking, and it happened to be on Purim. So they said to him, you know, um, where is um, the Megillah? You know, Esther. Is Esther alluded to in the Torah? Now the Torah was given approximately 13, let's say 1248 BCE. And the Megillah was what? About six, seven, eight hundred years later. Esther and Mordechai and Oman, right? The whole crew. And so on. <clears throat> so he asked them, where's Esther alluded to in the Torah? See? So he asked that to Rav Weissmendel. And Rav Weissmendel says, I'll tell you, I found it. If you go <clears throat> to the first place in the Torah where it says Aleph, which is Bracious, Beis, Reish, Aleph, right? Aleph, and you count from there, you skip the exact amount of letters in the Megillah, which is approximately, I don't know the exact number, but it's approximately 12,000, let's say 300 letters in the Megillah, whatever it is. You, that's a skip, right? So you start with Aleph, right? And you skip the exact amount of letters in the Megillah, right? Uh, you come to a Samach. If you count the same thing again, the letters, right? You come to a tough. You do it again, Reish, Esther. Which is astounding. Why? Because it means whoever wrote the Torah had to know that there would be an Esther, that there would be a Megillah, right? Because the Torah was given 800 years before. And the person who authored the Torah would also have to know how that there would be a Megillah, and how many letters there are in the Megillah in order to make this code, wouldn't he? And besides that, he would have to embed those letters in a narrative, because the Torah has its own narrative. So you'd actually place, you know, Esther with the exact amount of letters in the Megillah within the narrative that he was trying to anyway say. Who can do that? It's impossible. It's astounding. The probability for that, that that should occur by chance, is beyond astronomical. That a guy should be able to do that by chance, okay? 
So then he asked him, this guy asked Rav Weissmendel, he said to him, well, he told me Esther, what about Mordechai? Where's Mordechai in the Torah? So Rav Weissmendel said to him, uh, I don't know, I'll work on it, come back next year. He came back next year <coughs> and uh, to Rav Weissmendel and he asked him, well, you find it? So Rav Weissmendel said, I found it. Where? In Tetzaveh, which is, by the way, the parasha that we read on Purim, or on the week of Purim. So he picked a posik in Tetzaveh, a posik that says, more drawer, what the, 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 some of the, the uh, spices and so on, you know? So the first letter is Mem. Count the exact amount of letters in the Megillah as a skip. So you skip that, right, and it comes out to Reish. Dalid, Chof, Yud, Mordechai. It's incredible. Same thing. You see? <clears throat> and in fact, the Chazals say that uh, the name of Mordechai is alluded to in that postic. They don't say how. But <clears throat> those are called skip codes. But the, the, the awesomeness about that skip code is there is no way anybody could have written a Torah unless he knew that there would be a Mordechai that there would be a Megillah written and it would have exactly 12,300 letters. It's impossible. That is one of the greatest proofs that the Torah, and we're not even looking at the, at the Torah itself, right? Uh, is divinely authored. It's incredible. You know, it's funny because this guy then went home, he had a guest for Shabbos, a woman you know, who was not married, and uh, he said this over at the table, this, uh, this uh, skip code, and so on, you know. So she, she was not religious, you know, so she said that's impossible, you see. Ah, it's probably probability, it's probably not so far-fetched. Anyway, so they went to sleep. In the morning, she came out of her room, she was all red-eyed. She stood up the whole night, calculating. You know, she was apparently a, a major mathematics. She was calculating the probability of that. Is it possible to write that? Just through chance alone, and the calculations, the probability was astronomical. Hundreds of trillions, which is of course absurd, you know. <clears throat> anyway, so then, um, you know, the girl left, and about a, a couple of years later, he was at a wedding, and a girl comes over to him and says, you know, hi, you remember me? He said, no. He says, I'm the girl, I'm the woman that calculated the probability. And it was such an overwhelming proof. There was no way, you know. I became religious. I married a Kuala guy, and he learns in Kuala, you know, and so on. And she had a shaitlan. You know, some people actually are influenced by facts, you know. <laughs> you know. Many people just say, don't confuse me with the facts, right? Some people actually buy into it and say, hey, it's true, you know, and just count the letters of the Megillah, you see? Anyway, mm. but in that, that way, the, so the Torah has incredible amount of information in it just from skip codes. And there are many, there's a whole book written on the different skip codes, and, um, and of course they're trying to figure out future events and so on, you know? 
But uh, what I'm trying to say is that the Torah is a document that does have every single thing that God created. This is what you see. You see, and, and what it really means, we understand from that, why is it if one letter in the Torah is missing, it's invalid? Puzzle. Why? Because now that we understand the essential nature of the Torah is a document that has every single thing ever created. If one letter is missing, that means something's missing in creation, right? So that this cannot be the document that describes creation, because something's missing. And therefore it's possible. Makes sense. That halacha makes sense. In any case, <clears throat> this is what we see in terms of what the Torah reveals. And that's what it says also, Torah Hashem Tamimo. The law of God, the Torah of God, Tamimo, it's complete. Complete means everything is in it. So automatically we begin to see that the Torah is like no other document ever written. It has all the information. Our problem is we don't know how to access that. At the future time, when the Mashiach comes, part of the Messianic light is the revelation of all that information in the Torah. Exactly. We will then understand the whole concept of the vocabulary the Torah uses and how everything is in it. See, that's all part of the Messianic light that will be revealed uh, in terms of in the, in the future time. So, you know. um, so that's one level of understanding what the Torah is. That is that it's a document that reveals, reflects everything. But let's go deeper in terms of what is the Torah. Uh, how does God perform his actions? How does he create everything? And the answer to that is that what he does is he sends forth certain divine energies. It's probably the best way you can describe it. Certain divine energies or divine forces. They're called spheres. There are ten of them. Okay, it is unknown what the nature of these forces are, but apparently they are the forces that God uses. There are ten of them, and they create realities. They can create a reality, see. And there are many realities that these forces create. Now, <clears throat> for each action that God does, for every action, God has a name for that action. Exactly, he has a name for that action, you see. So, if you refer to God insofar as that action that that name represents, that is actually talking to God in terms of that action. What is interesting about that is that's a very powerful force to use in many ways to do things, you see. So therefore, what it comes out is very interesting. <clears throat> All the names or all the words in the Torah, fundamentally is what? Are the names of God insofar as he does a specific action. That's his name. Like, a, like for instance, a person, he's a judge. So he is called a judge insofar as he will act in a certain role of being a judge. You see. So therefore, when you think about it, the entire Torah, all the words, is not merely words that have literary meaning for us. But what also is, is they are the names of God insofar as he, what he has done for every action. That's why the Ramban says that that the entire Torah is nothing more than the names of God. You see, at one level, 
It's a narrative. It tells us many things. The mitzvahs, the tariq mitzvahs, tells us the history of what happened in the world. But at a mystical level, Kabbalistic level, what the Torah is, is the words of the Torah that we see as a story or a narrative. What they really are is a specific name of God insofar as he does a specific action. And it's, and it's not only that, but that what that word is also, besides being the name of God in that action, the letters of that word represent the combinations of the ten spheres that God uses to create that word or that noun or whatever that word represents. So the word is called an ontological word. It's not merely a descriptive language. It represents a concept, right? That's what language is. It's sounds that represent concepts that we agree means that. That's what a language is. Uh, the vocabulary of the Torah itself is called generative. It generates. In other words, if you say the word shulchan, so those letters of shulchan, shin, lamed, ches, nun, shulchan, they represent certain combinations of spheres that create the concept called shulchan. You see, so the vocabulary itself generates the object. It is a true ontological language, uh, and so on. It's not merely a word that we agree on means something. It generates the object that it refers to. So, what do we have? The word itself represents the object. It is also the name of God, right? Insofar as he creates that object, you see. <clears throat> now, that has a lot of very interesting useful usages, actually. If one <clears throat> knows how to actually uh, manipulate that. <clears throat> if a person knows how, <clears throat> and I'm going to tell you, there's a concept called white magic. How is it done? We know from the Gemara that there were Tanoim, there were Abzerah, whoever, and so on, that they, it was Friday, Friday night, or it was actually before Arab Shabbos, and they, were, they had nothing to eat. So what they did is they meditated on the names that God uses to create a cow. And they created a cow. And they ate it. Talk about homemade cooking. You know, <clears throat> how do they do it? You see? Because they knew the actual wording that God uses to create a cow. I mean, whatever that is, right? And there's a certain procedure that you do. You concentrate on that. You meditate and so on. And they were able to create a cow. <clears throat> that is how a person can actually create. Because what happens is this, when you meditate on that name using certain thoughts, then what happens is, is that there's a malach, an angel, that is in charge of every single item in the universe. So when you meditate on that name, what happens is that the malach is able to generate that force that God uses he has access to that force and he can actually create that which you are meditating on. It's called Kabbalomysis, obviously. It's called using the names of God in the sense that he has created those things. So if you 
use those names and you meditate on them, you can uh, do anything you want. There's a book which is very interesting. You can actually buy it in Swaram store. It was written by the Rebbe of the Rebbe of the Ramchal. Ramon Mutsato's Rebbe, and it was his Rebbe that wrote the book. See, it's called Seamus, Divine Names or whatever. And in that book, he has what the other names to meditate, to disappear, to travel instantly to any place on earth, to cure any disease. It's astounding. And he actually gives you the recipe of what to do and how to do it, and so on, you know. <clears throat> but uh, I'm just, what I'm trying to bring out, <clears throat> in fact, Moshe Rabbeinu, when he did the makas, you know, how did he do it? When you think about that. He said, dumb. Right? And all of a sudden, the whole Nile turned to blood. How did he do it? Because what Moshe Rabbeinu, he had the staff of God. We know that. He had the staff. And on that staff was written the ten plagues. But in, in the actual name that can do it. So what Moshe Rabbeinu did, right, to make the concept of Dham, he meditated on that name which would turn the Nile to blood. You see? And guess what? It turned to blood. See, that's how he did it. He employed the force that God uses to do these things. He employed that and he was able to create all the templates. That's how he did it, you see. That's really, that's what's called white magic. It's called white because it doesn't use the forces of evil or the sudden, satanic forces and so on. But rather it uses the actual forces, spheres, that God used to create whatever item you want to do, right? And then you employ the angel to do it for you, you see. And th that force is actually, it's available. Obviously you have to know what you're doing. The only problem is you have to know what you're doing. This is the problem. Because angels don't like to be disturbed, you see. <clears throat> In fact, there's a story of the, uh, the Baal Shem Tov and somebody else, he was learning at night and uh, they were using these forces, these things, you know, you know. And all of a sudden the Baal Shem Tov said to, it was like 3 a.m. or whatever, and he said to the other person, he says, wait, we made a mistake. No good. We, either, it's not clear what the mistake was, either they called up the wrong angel, the wrong malach to do it, whatever the mistake was. But he said, that angel now has power over us because we hooked up to it. See, if you disturb them, then what happens is they now have a relationship with you. And if you're not a guy that fits or is appropriate for doing that thing, no good. Then they can really harm you, you know? So he said to the guy, he said to Skavrusa, you and I cannot go to sleep for the rest of the night. Because that's, that's the power given to that malach. It can be used as long as it's dark. Well, they struggled to stay up all night. You know, and right before dawn, the Baal Shem was able to do it, but the other guy closed his eyes for a split second. And you know, all it takes is a split second and you're off to dreamland. And then all of a sudden you wake up. But it was too late. You were dead, you know. So it shows you that <clears throat> there are many forces uh, that can be used, but you have to know what you're doing. Because once you start starting up with that kind of spiritual dimensions, you know, 
But I bring it in the context of what the Torah is. That all the names are already in the Torah. But in a different language, they represent all the different forces that God uses to create everything. And if a person knows what to do, he can replicate that. You see. Uh, <clears throat> so we're looking at a document that, which is really, in many ways, incredible. You know, as I said, you know, it has everything ever made. It is the names of God insofar as he has created everything. Which obviously is an incredibly unusual document and so on, you know. <clears throat> now you have to remember one thing also. <clears throat> the Torah is not only a document in terms of what is. It's also a document in terms of what can be. What can be, you see. Because it provides you with what's called triggers. What does that mean? What, what, is really, what does God really want? You know, in an essential way. I would say, yeah, well, he wants somebody to do the mitzvahs. That's true, you know. But what does he really want? What God wants is he used these forces to create five realities. That's what they are. There are five realities. Imagine a building that has five floors, okay? The ground floor, right? Then you have one, two, three, four. <clears throat> what those forces created, those spheres, is they created first ilm habo the future world yes that's really what was first not last it's first the future world that's why the word ilm habo if i asked you if you want to say in hebrew the world to come how would you say it you wouldn't say ilm habo you would say ilm sheyavoy the world to come right for those who know hebrew i imagine people know hebrew here right so what's this ilm habo Oilam Habo really means the world that came. So there's a Sefer Habba here, which is a very, very uh, fundamental Kabbalistic text, that says Oilam Habo doesn't mean the future world. It means the world that came initially, and it is our job to restore Oilam Habo back into Oilam Habo. You see? That's really what Oilam Habo is, which is interesting. So Sefer Habba here says that. So what does that mean? So God uses these forces and they create five realities. So the first reality is called Ilm Habo. Then below that he creates a reality which is called Ilm Hazer, this world. But this world has four different sections, if you want to use that, okay? And in each section there's something that inhabits that section. And there are four of them, four sections which are part of Ilm uh, Hazer, okay? We are in the lower section. It's called Ilm Asiyah, the world of action, because here we have to do action. But what are the actions that we're supposed to do? The actions that we're supposed to do is <coughs> to expand on the light or the energy of the spheres. See, the way God does it is He emits divine energies and those divine energies diminish. When the spheres diminish, they create a reality which is inferior to the one before. Then they diminish more, and they create a reality which is inferior to the one before. So it starts off, it's like a, it's like a, a bulb, 10,000 watt bulb, right? So it starts off as 10,000 watts, right? So there's a certain amount of light. Then it diminishes to 8,000. So obviously, the view is much different and so on. So that's what the spheres do. They diminish, 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 diminish until they create the physical world. 
You see? Now what God wants essentially is He wants us to reverse the process. He wants us to expand on the output of energy of these spheres. If we do that, guess what? We can actually change realities. We go from the lowest reality, which is this reality, into the next. We actually change this world into a higher reality, which is spiritual, you see. And then if we do more, then we change that spiritual reality into a higher reality until we actually create or retransform the lowest reality into Ilm Habo, the future world. You see, which is very interesting. So the job really of a Jew is to retransform realities back into the highest one, which is Ilm Habo, which is the spiritual reality, the greatest of all. That's really what we have to do. It's a retransformation process. But how do we do it? Where are the triggers? And the triggers are in the Torah. The triggers are the Tariyad Mitzvahs. The 613 commandments are the triggers that will in increase the energy or divine energy output of the spheres, thereby changing reality from the lowest to the highest. The problem that we have now is that we only can change it in potential. We get credits, but we can't change the physical world until we will have completed the job. At that point in time, the Mashiach will come, and then all of a sudden, everything that we labored to do, all of a sudden is actualized, and all of a sudden, the spheres will now be energized and actually change the realities from Asiya to what's called Yitzira, to Bria to Atsilus, and then all of a sudden the whole thing changes into Ilm Habo. And that takes, by the way, a long time, you see. So the world has to exist for 6,000 years. That's what it says in the Gemara. The world will exist for 6,000 years because there are six days of creation. The seventh day is Shabbos, so therefore on Shabbos, begins the transformation, you see. Now, <clears throat> the messianic era is the era at the end of time before the year 6000. So we are really about 219 years away from the end. That's all. And once that happens, it's over with. Then all of a sudden, in the messianic era, or actually it's after 6000, right? All the potentials, credits, that we have accumulated through the mitzvahs, which are the triggers, will all of a sudden be activated and the entire physical universe, all 13.1 billion light years, changes into a next reality, which is the Oyrim Yitzira. Then, and that takes a thousand years. Then all of a sudden, in the next thousand years, the Yitzira changes into Bria, you see. And then finally, Bria changes into Atsilus, and then the 10,000th year, because you go from 6 to 7, 7 to 8, 8 to 9, you see? And then in 9,001, which is the 10,000th year, that becomes Ilm Habo. But don't worry, it doesn't make a difference, because once the Messianic era arrives, then that's all that you have to worry about, because that's the end of the Sultan. The Sultan dies, that is the end of evil. You see, but the transformation 
from a physical universe into a completely uh, spiritual phase, plane, takes time, but it doesn't make a difference. Once the Mashiach arrives, then the waiting game is over, you see. <clears throat> and ultimately speaking, the last reality, which is the future world, is a world that we cannot, we cannot comprehend. What goes on there, we have no idea. It's not because we've never experienced it, you see. So you can say, well, I've never experienced, uh, you know, so how do I know? No, that's not the problem. The problem is that we don't have any concepts right now that can refer really to Olam Haba, other than to say that it is a place. Actually, it's a dimension or it's a state of being, you see. But the state of being in that world is not comprehensible now uh, because we have no uh, uh, model or example that can even refer to that type of a reality, you see. Uh, and that really is what the future world is. And once the messianic era begins, which hopefully will be very shortly, uh, then the transformation process begins. But the Torah is a document that has all the triggers. All those mitzvahs, Tariyag mitzvahs, that we do, essentially they are switches, triggers, that increases the output of the spheres. And when the time comes that they can be activated, all of a sudden they are activated and the world changes, you see, which is an astounding thing. The only one who really can talk about that in a certain sense was Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu, when he received the Torah, he went up for 40 days. And it says, I didn't eat any bread and I didn't drink any wine. I, I, I didn't drink. And so on. What does that mean? It means that he was transformed, okay, to the Olam Yitzira. And that's why he could speak to the angels. And he had a whole dialogue with them, which the Gemara brings down, the Chazal bring down. He had an entire dialogue and so on, you see, about um, whatever they, they, they would discuss and so on, you know. But the essential idea is that he was an Olim Yitzira, <coughs> you see. And, uh, and he was obviously one of the few people that ever went up, literally went up and then came down, back down into a normal body, you see. Now what is interesting is this. He had a discussion with the angels, with the Malachim. And you know what the Malachim said to him? He said, wait a minute, why is God giving you the Torah? We want the Torah. That's what the Malachim said. Because they understood the greatness of the Torah and the enormous amount of spirituality that is in the Torah. So they said to Moshe, wait a minute, why, why is God giving you the Torah? We want the Torah. So what did Moshe Rabbeinu answer? But Moshe Rabbeinu said, wait a minute, it says in the Torah, honor your father and mother. You guys got fathers and mothers? Of course not. So how can you take the Torah? You don't have that. So obviously, you cannot receive a Torah which you have nothing anyway with. That's what he answered them. And then they were quiet. The question is, excuse me, you mean they didn't know it says, honor your father and mother? I mean, they don't know this? Of course they know this. So, what was Moshe Rabbeinu Machadish? What was he, what did he tell them? You know, that quieted, quieted them, uh, them in, in the first place. Because here's what you begin to understand. <clears throat> we have a document called the Torah. Now, the Torah is really what? The Torah, like I said, is the names of God, 
insofar as he has done every action. Yes? But wait a minute. How does God act? He acts through the spheres. Therefore the Torah is every possible combination of those ten spheres. Right? That's the name. The name refers to every single combination or configuration of those ten spheres insofar as they create something. So really the Torah is all the spheres. It is a description of every sphere combination ever done. And that's how God does things, you see. But that's interesting. Why do we have to learn the Torah at the level of a mitzvah, right? Honor your father and mother is a mitzvah. But honoring your father and mo mother, right, is a specific concept called father, mother, honor. There's a whole bunch of ideas, you see. And all those ideas were created by the spheres. So what the Malachim said is, wait a minute, why do we have to learn the Torah when the Torah comes down to this earth, it takes the form of this language. But if the Torah didn't come down here, then you could learn the Torah in its original code, which is the spheres. You know what it's like? It's like computer language. You know, you have a language, right? But the guys who are programmers, right, they can go right to the machine language, right? You ever see those crazy symbols for computer language, right? Millions of different codes and so on. Really, the Torah is a code for every single thing that exists. So it's like a computer. Why do I have to look at the English translation or the instructions in English? Why can't I just talk to the, to the machine, right? The, 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 the computer itself and talk to it in its real code language whatever that is, the m m digital language or machine language, which is much closer to the source. You see, it's not filtered through all the different, what do you call, I think it's called the transpilers or whatever they call that, compilers or whatever, you know. W why do I have to do that? See, so that's what the Malachim said. You see, what do you mean? Uh, yeah, why, do you, why should you get the Torah? Why don't we get it? What do you mean we get it? Because we want to learn about honoring your father and mo mother, not by the actual physical reality of father and mother. We want to learn about it on the level of the spheres, machine language, which is the greatest spiritual force. Means we want to learn about the spheres in the actualization of unbelievable spiritual force. You know? Forget about its dilution as it comes down here. You know what I'm saying? Where it's diluted and finally expresses itself in a, a father and a mother and an honor. You see? No. You could go straight to the machine language, so to speak, straight to the spheral language itself, and that's the highest hasaga, insight into the trigger. There's nothing that's greater. That's what they wanted. Makes sense. They were very smart, the malachim. You see, that's where they wanted to go. But Moshe Rabbeinu said, no. So what did he answer them? He says, well, let's think of it this way. If God wanted uh, his uh, combinations of spheres to remain, or the Torah, to remain at that level, then why would he bring it down to this earth that gets translated as mother, father, and honor? Why? And the answer is because God wants us to observe that, therefore creating much greater energy to expand the energy of the spheres, to change the world, and therefore we can get credit for changing the universe into a higher level. 
That's why. So if you want to read the Torah at your level, there's no growth. You know, you just read it and that's the end of it. Then the universe. But when the Jews get the Torah and they observe the Torah, then what happens is the sphere of combinations of whatever mitzvahs they're doing automatically is infinitely elevated. That's what God wants. You see? That was the real discussion. It's an interesting discussion to have with angels, isn't it? You see? But the only way you can have that discussion is if you really know what the Torah is. So it's interesting that you could learn the Torah at the machine language level, the computer level, right? The binary code and so on, right? And which is obviously unbelievable because then you, you actually have insight into the divine energies itself. But you can't expand them. They don't grow, you see. For them to grow, you have to have free will, you have to do the mitzvahs, then all of a sudden they unleash much greater force. And that's the whole point of creation. You see, <clears throat> so that was an, an incredible, very interesting dialogue that Moshe Rabbeinu had with the Malachim. But what it teaches us is the level of what Torah really is. That Torah, at our level, is really Torah as it's got to squeeze itself into Ilm Hazer. It was the Torah, at the, imagine the Torah at that pristine level of greatness has to alter its form to a physical form you know, honor father, mother, to become physical, and that's the trigger, you see. But imagine what Torah is when that is changed back into its sphere, which is the highest spiritual level of all. Could you imagine what that is? We don't know what that is, you see. But we will know in the future world, in Ulam Habo. You see, that's what awaits us, to understand the complete plan of creation at its original level of creation. It's a very important concept that we have to understand what that is and so on, see. So therefore, that also is also part of what the Torah is. Very important idea. So we begin to realize this is not an ordinary book. And a mitzvah is not an ordinary mitzvah. <laughs> there are triggers for spheres and all the configurations and the combinations of these incredible divine energies, you know. <clears throat> and those divine energies are in many ways very close to God, because obviously, why do we have ten fingers? We, by the way, model that. We have ten fingers because God has ten spheres, and each sphere is a finger. That's why we model that, you see, and that's why we have that. In fact, even the Egyptians in Egypt, when they couldn't produce kinam, lice, because the rule is that magic cannot affect anything less than a barley bean. And a lice is smaller than barley, right? So as a result of that, they couldn't replicate Moshe Rabbeinu's lice. You see? They couldn't do it. So they realized, he said, wait a minute. How's he pulling this off? Right? It can't be magic because magic doesn't work on anything less than the size of a barley grain. You see? So here's what they thought. Originally they thought, well, we, we, we are incredible magicians, no problem. And Moshe Rabbeinu is an incredible magician, right? But he's got this kind of incredible knowledge, right? So I, why, why, why does he know this kind of uh, sophistication? Because, you know, he went to Harvard and took magic, you know? We, we went to City College, right? What do we know from City College? You see, that's what they thought. But when Moshe Rabbeinu pulled off the lice, they said, wait a minute, you know? 
Even Harvard can't teach this because magic doesn't work if the thing is less than a barley-sized grain, you see. So as a result of that, they knew, therefore, that Moshe Rabbeinu's access is not physical or magic. It is spiritual. And that's why they said, Etzpa Elohim He, it is the finger of God. They actually refer to the right organ, the finger, which is the spheres itself. They realized that what he's doing is not magic. In fact, magic derives all its power from those spheres. And Moshe Rabbeinu is tapping into the original lodestone of spirituality. That's what they realized, you see. And they actually refer to it, as I said, the finger of God. You see, and that's really the model, and so on, you see. In any case, mm -hmm. this is what we now begin to see. That Torah is really at a different level. It's a whole different understanding what Torah is. It is the blueprint. It is a revelation of all the acts of God. It is all the names of God. It's all the sphere of configurations, you see. And all of this ultimately will be revealed when? In the Messianic era. In the Messianic era, all of this will be revealed. So could you imagine what that is? It's just beyond belief, what will be revealed in the Messianic era. And I want to tell you something. The Messianic era is not the future world. It is this world at the end. The Messianic era is the last tikufa, the last era of this earth. You see? It could start three years from now. And that means the Mashiach is an individual that will reveal this information. So, what kind of information is this? It's beyond belief. Do you have any idea how far the world is from that type of spiritual information? Do you believe? Imagine if the Mashiach came, you know, and revealed this aspect of the Torah, which is the level of reality at the level of the spheres, and he begins revealing that, what would happen to everybody? You know what would happen? Everybody would drop dead. Because they couldn't, ex they couldn't uh, absorb, they cannot experience that level of holiness. It's just too great, and your person just dies. You see? And that actually, ultimately, is what happens. I mean, the Chazal say, and it says in the Shayo Hanavi, Hine Yaskel Avdi, behold, my servant will grow wise. And who is that? That servant growing wise, it's in Perak Nun Beis, okay, at the end. My servant will grow wise. So who is that? So the Targum says, Malcolm Mashiach, that is the Mashiach. He will grow wise, which means he himself has to grow. Interesting. And then it says three expressions of growth. One, Vyoram, he will be exalted, Venisa, lifted high, Vagovamioid. So the Medish asks, why are there three expressions of growth for this individual? So what the Medish says is incredible. Who is the Mashiach, this man, right, that is going to redeem the planet, change the face of mankind and society? Who is this guy? So the first level of growth is Vyoram. He will be greater than Avram Avinu. Do you imagine a guy walking around who's greater than Abraham? We don't even know who Abraham was. And God spoke to Abraham, right? He will be greater than Avram Avinu. The second level of growth is Venisa. He will be greater than Moshe Rabbeinu. Imagine meeting Moshe Rabbeinu in the street, right? What would you do? Your plots. 
Imagine meeting a person like Moshe Rabbeinu that spoke God for 40 years. That he spoke actually to God for 40 years. It's beyond belief. So then the Medrash says, what about the third expression of growth, right? What does that mean? So the Medrash says that he will be greater than the angels. Now this is a regular guy walking around, right? He's, when I talk about an angel, he'll be greater than the Malachim. He's a human being that has this type of status. It's beyond belief what this guy is. That is why the Mashiach is the most dangerous man in the world. Because he comes with a level of such unbelievable holiness and righteousness that nobody could stand within four feet of the man. In fact, you can't even stand on the same block as the guy. Because how could you possibly experience that type of incredible spirituality? You see, so the question is, how is it going to work? You know, then how does it work? And the answer is that what God will do is he will change the fabric of mankind. He has to, or you cannot even accept a redeemer. You see, what does that mean? What does that actually mean? Because it says in, uh, in the end of Devarim, it says, and even if you be at the ends of heaven, even if you be Shemayim, he's talking to the Jews, even, and this is the end of time, even if you be at the ends of heaven, right? From there, I will gather you. From there, I will gather you. Imagine this is God speaking, and we're talking about the ends of the earth, ends of heaven, means you're all over the planet. That's what it means. I will gather you, God says, and I will take you to me. Why? Because if he doesn't do that, you cannot have a Mashiach. The difference between his level of holiness and the level of holiness that has to happen at the end of time is so far above what the world is today. I mean, just think about the world today. You know, the incredible corruption, the evil, the immorality, you know, the incompetence. Just, just think about your favorite country and what's happening in that country, right? It's incredible. The, the, the status of man is so low, that we, we cannot even, you know, we're used to it because, you know, we're, we're, it's like, you know, we're used to this mud and this garbage. We live in a garbage heap. It's basically what we do. We don't even know it's a garbage heap, you see? So a lot of people spend a lot of their time redecorating the garbage heap. Think about that. But that's really what it is. Compared to what a messianic era is, it's, it, it's, it's just astoundingly uh, degraded and inferior. So then how could Klai Yisrael, or even mankind, accept this figure? He's so far above everything else. And the answer is, what God does is very interesting. That the Mashiach himself is a prisoner. Because if he ever was able to come out with who he is, he'd kill everybody. So he himself has to grow. Interesting, that God subdues him. He says, oh no, you can't do this. Remember Moshe Rabbeinu? He came down from the mountain. You couldn't even look at him because his face shone. He had to wear a mask. You see? Well, nobody could look at the guy. You see? Same thing with the Mashiach. So what the Mashiach does to him is he subdues him, subjugates him to a tremendous difficult uh, in terms of who he is that he really cannot actualize his potential. It's called Yisur Mashiach, whatever. But in any case, he does that to protect, one of the reasons is to protect the Jewish people and actually the entire world. So what happens is the Mashiach grows and simultaneous with the growth of the Mashiach, the Jews will grow too. 
see then it works because then he doesn't overwhelm everybody you see so the Jewish people they will grow simultaneous with the growth of this man the Mashiach himself you see and then God makes sure that the growth is you know uh, simultaneous and so on you know where nobody's gonna suffer harm so could you imagine what this world is gonna look like we can't you know this world has entered such a degraded state you know and like I say we don't even realize because we live in this degradation you know, what does it mean you know uh, to live in, a, in an incredibly spiritual place and so on you know but that will not always be there will be a time when the Jewish people will return to God they will return to the Torah and they will return to the pursuit not of happiness so I always love the declaration it will be the pursuit of righteousness and holiness and that will be the greatest happiness you see because according to the declaration you know you know the pursuit of happiness and so on you know that can mean anything you know whatever's whatever you're into you're happy you know no no that that's not happiness what God wants is not that you know is uh, you know uh, materialism and uh, you know and and and, uh, and, and uh, pleasure what God wants is righteousness and holiness and that will be in really in a very uh, a very short order in that sense you see <clears throat> and then he will reveal the Torah at the level of the spheres slowly because the, the amount of holiness that will come out of the, the Torah document is beyond our ability to comprehend but we will be at that level because that's why God says I must take you back or else you can never be redeemed you cannot what I have planned for you you know imagine a guy's in a hospital right and he's connected to all the tubes all the tubes and he's in a hospital right and all of a sudden his hospital room is he's got a window right and the window you know and the window is partially open and he hears this incredible party going on uh, across the street you know let's say it's a New Year's Eve party right and he's in the hospital he's plugged into every available plug right he's sick he's band-aid forget about it he's, you know it, 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 it's a it's a nightmare right and he's this incredible party going on next door you know what can he do can he get up and join the party of course not right he can't join them it's not because they don't want him he can't possibly appreciate and experience the fun, if you want to use that word, going on next door or across the street. Same idea. Mashiach is going to come with this unbelievable party, so to speak, of goodies, right? You can't even touch those goodies because you are so far. It is such a different universe of what he has to offer. How could you possibly even partake of what he has? That's why God must change this world. Because what the Mashiach has to offer is not possible for us to in any way experience. It's just a, it's a different type of experience. A different type of pleasure, you see. So then what's the point of His coming? If we can't anyway experience it, so what's the point? There's no redemption with that. On the contrary, all there is is pain and suffering knowing that we can't be involved with what He's got to offer. You see, it's like that guy in bed in the hospital, imagine the pain he's going through when they, you know, they screamed across the street and said, hey, why don't you come and join us? And he can't. It's painful. 
That's why God will redeem mankind. Or else they can never really experience the Mashiach and the entire unbelievable era of what he has to offer. And what will he offer? He will offer the Torah at a level which we can have never comprehended before. I've just given you a small taste of what the Torah really is and so on, you know. But the Torah, as the Malachim would have learned it, is something so far beyond our ability to conceive, you see. But that ultimately is what God wants. In fact, if the Malachim had experienced the Torah at the level of the spheres, that would be incredible. But since we have to change the Torah and bring it back to that world, therefore we will experience the Torah infinitely greater than the Malachim. Because they can't, they cannot change the, the, the level of experience of Torah. They can't do that. They can just, well, whatever's there, let's try to understand. But I cannot change the amount of light coming out of that. But we can. And that was Moshe Rabbeinu's argument. We can do it. Because that's our job. God wants us to alter, to improve, to enormously magnify the all the spheres. So not only will we be experiencing what the Malachim get, we will be infinitely greater. In fact, they're going to beg us, please give me something of what you guys got. Because we can't produce that. We don't have the wherewithal. You see, and that's really what happens in the Messianic era. You see, which is, it's amazing when you think about that. I'm not talking about the future world. I'm talking about the Messianic era is an era of now. Of, you know, could be five years, two years, three years. It's, it's this world that will have the Messianic era. Could you imagine what that is? We can't. Like trying to imagine Shangri-La, those guys, you know, that, that it's trying to imagine a utopia which we can't, we have no tools, we don't even have a language to describe it. That's the Torah. You see, so the Torah is the vehicle to get there and ultimately the Torah is the reward itself that we get. Imagine what kind of a document that really is, you see. And therefore, Torah, Torah, Kenegi Kulam. The greatest thing ever given to man is the Torah, you see. Because it is the vehicle that gets us to a height that we can't really even begin to imagine what that is. This is what the Torah is, and therefore it's connected Kulam. It's the greatest thing, it's the greatest gift ever given to mankind, is the Torah itself, you know. So let's hope that this year, it's going to begin, right? It's going to begin shortly, on September 17th, <laughs> right? Which is the elections. It's going to begin, right? Let's hope, right? And things are going to happen where there's going to be a beginning of the initiation where, where the Jewish people have to become more spiritual. There's just no other way because Mashiach cannot come to a nation that cannot even experience what he's got to offer. It doesn't even make sense. Think about that, you know? <clears throat> and so on, you know? He, he can only come to a nation that is able to enjoy and understand and relate to what he's got to give. If you can't relate it, what in the world is he doing? To who is he coming? You see? That's why God says, I will gather you, even if you're at the ends of heaven, I will gather you 
and I will bring you to me, you see, because other than that there's no rationale for a messianic era, you see, and that's really ultimately what happens. Okay, let's hope that he's going to come shortly, we're all going to see him, and we're going to say thank God that you came, finally, and ended this unbelievable nightmare, what's called this world. Thank you. Any questions? <laughs> By the way, part two is in two weeks of, of this, uh, the greatness of Torah. The question is, yeah. Yeah, I just want to interrupt for one second. You know, they have mankind has different ages. The age of the, uh, you know, the Paleolithic age and all these kind of things. You know what the age of today is? The garb age. <laughs> right? But you have also said that it, it appears on one level, it appears like the garb age because the tikkun was done to Yisurim and not to Nisus and Shuba. Yeah. So the, the paradox is there's how we perceive it, but there's another level of reality that it's almost perfected. It's almost the sheep put Yes, we're very. So when, so when you talk about, about we'll gather you from the farthest region of Yeah. The tikkun that's like a period of where the tikkun has accomplished that. Now we're, our perception of the garbage, garbage yeah. is now going to be revised to the perception of the, of the rectified. Yeah, of course, yeah. That's why we have to change. That's why God must change the world before Mashiach comes, not after. Because once He comes, then you, in no way can you experience what He's going to give you. You know, you know what it's like? It's like you walk over you to the zoo, right? And there's a gorilla behind the cage, right? Behind the bars, right? And all of a sudden you take out money and you say, hey, would you like a hundred bucks? To the gorilla. He says, you know, the only thing he's looking at is to you, you know, maybe wants a snack on you. That's about the only thing he's looking for. All the gorillas are basically not the herbivores, you know, you know. But he can't appreciate money. It's not his vocabulary. It's not his language. You know, it's like the, the English expression, casting pearls before swine. You know, what are you offering them? You know, it has no value to them. Yeah. We yeah. We don't have the vehicle. If you don't have a mouth, in no way can you eat mm. without a mouth. The same thing. The Mashiach is going to change the world. And if you don't know what spirituality is, how possibly can you experience? And it doesn't make a difference how great what he does. You can't experience something without what's called the instrumentality. You don't have any instrument to, to absorb or to experience that. So what does it mean? And it doesn't mean even if that what he wants to offer you is the greatest thing ever done. That's why God must change the world. It's not an option. Because redemption has no meaning if, if mankind is completely aspiritual. You see? It's a terrible irony because we did the but we can't... We can't, we can't have no access to the fruits of our labor. Well, that's why God says, yeah. 
No matter where you're at, I will bring you close to me. I will gather you from wherever you are, and I will bring you to me. And what does to me mean? Spirituality. It means divine. That's what it means. You know? It's a very important concept. Uh, that there must be a redemption before the Mashiach comes. Or else you do not have the wherewithal and the instruments to even appreciate what he's going to give you. You see? People don't realize that. That there has to be what's called a precursor to the redemption itself. Yeah. Ah, go ahead. So I just want to make sure I understood correctly. So even that process that you described, Hashem says, Kabezka, I'll gather you in, all of that comes from the energy generated by us doing this or something. Yes. Correct. So the fundamental uh, consequence of the mitzvahs is the storage into the bank. Yeah. That then when a certain amount is reached or... Time, reached, when the time is right, then actualized. Right. Now, it's not that mitzvahs are so much working on myself or working on whatever, but that's the main main uh, virtue of the mitzvah. No, that's the consequence of the mitzvahs. The mitzvahs are working on yourself. That is the mitzvah. To change yourself. You see, and that generates an enormous amount of spiritual repercussions which is stored. So, the real spiritual change is stored. It means where you physically change. There's no Tchiyas means there's no death. Right? What does that mean there's no death? I mean, you, that, I mean, it has to mean that your physical body has to change. Your genetic structure is different. You see, it's not because there's no disease. You can't become sick. You see, it's not like because, well, everybody took a vaccine, therefore he's not going to be sick. No, there's no pathogen anymore. So how are you going to become sick? That's what a messianic is. When death dies, when the sudden dies, right? That's the end of pathogen. It's the end of evil, immorality. It's the end of any kind of disease, you see? And because it doesn't exist anymore. And that's a consequence of quantity of mitzvahs. Mitzvahs, correct, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not that we get this free gift. Nothing is free. We, we, in other words, we get what we stored. You put money in the bank, you get to take, you get to retire. You don't put the money in the bank, there's no money for retirement. It's the same idea. That's the way this world has been set up. You know? But the in-gathering is what you... But the what? The in-gathering, yeah. the exile, is really... Uh, the con it's a different concept than what... Uh, what you're saying, what I'm think I'm understanding, you're saying is, it's the, it's the ingathering of the, of the work that's put in that, that now Hashem can use that to transform us into... Yeah, yeah, he's got to bring you back. Yeah. Only? Who? Hashem doesn't have anything in there, like if we're short a few bucks, he's not going to... I'm not hearing you, what? As it's only a consequence of what we put in, like Hashem isn't going to throw in a little something if we come up short. <laughs> Let me tell you something. What God, as you call it, throws in, right? It's called, you know, what looks like it's freebies. But not really. What the freebie is, mercy, 
where he will suspend the judgment. Maybe you'll do tshuva. That's a freebie. Not really, but that's a throw-in, right? And then there's what's called, he will make sure that you get the future world even though if you don't deserve it. Because maybe you, you have a kapara through Yisurin. He doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have to rehabilitate you. But that's part of the freebie. See, there's a lot of things that he will do that's going to assist you into getting into the future world and the messianic era and so on, you know? But in an absolute sense, whatever in the great awesome day of judgment, which is the end of time, when you will be judged on everything, every incarnation, every act or deed you ever did, it will, you will be judged on that, and then your position in the future world, I'm not talking about the messianic era, will be established, and that is exactly due to your acts. Nothing is free. And there's a reason for that, which I'm not going to go into. It's called Namadik Sufa, the bread of shame. But, and, and that's what it is. But to get you there, there's all kinds of assisting devices. And that's freebie in that sense. You know? Uh, because God wants everybody to be in the future world. He doesn't want to live there alone. I'm not looking at it. I'm just happy you know, <laughs> no, every Jew will make it. Every Jew will be in the future world. Even if he doesn't deserve the future world. Because God will give him, instead of this type of punishment, he'll give him another punishment. Or he'll make sure that everybody somehow gets into it. Yeah, I'm not talking about the future world. I'm thinking, you know, he created worlds and destroyed them because they didn't make it. Right? They didn't. <clears throat> no, they, no, I read, it's not because they didn't make it. Those are precursors. No, those are the, the developmental phases uh, to get to this world. That's the, uh, the, uh, the Ari. They're not because they didn't make it. No, that's, that's not based on the Ari. You know? Yeah. Anybody else? What is the concept of something catastrophic? Who? Something catastrophic happening to, in the blink of an eye. Where does that, all that fit <clears throat> into Well, I, I had mentioned in other videos that in order for something messianic to happen, right, it has to come out of nowhere. Literally out of nowhere. And, you know, it's called the Vanahapechu, Haman. Overnight he was destroyed. And, they, and it doesn't make sense. He's a Grand Vizier. How can he be destroyed? Yet God arranged it in such a way where from one day he was riding high, and the next day he was, next day he was buried. You see, that's the Vanahapechu, which is how the Mashiach will arrive. You see, and that's so the Sutton doesn't prosecute to try to stop him from coming because he's going to bring up the sins of the Jews and say, well, why should they deserve it? They don't really deserve it. So therefore, anything connected to the Mashiach must be um, shocking. Trump's election. Trump. My God, all the videos. That's shocking. Uh, America's still suffering from psychiatric syndromes. That's why right? They still can't get over it. You know? <coughs> yeah. That's why you're saying watch out for September 17th. That's like oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That, that's going to be, could be, could be shocking. Yeah. When nobody expected. Look, there are certain things. The fall of the Berlin Wall was shocking. You know, the collapse of communism was shocking. There are things in the, in, that have happened in history that are just stunning and nobody expected them. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, and so on, and that's what we're seeing. 
You know, these are stunning events. Look, the fact that Jews have Israel back is stunning. Whoever heard of a country in exile for 2,000 years and now they have their country back? Not only they have their country back, they have their language back. Not only that, Israel is rising amongst the nation where countries are running to do business with Israel. It's like, what is this? You know, this never happened before, you know, but that's what happens. Uh, a messianic event is always stunning, you know, and it's going to happen the same thing. You will be stunned and shocked about what's coming up, you know, and, uh, you know, like I said, the election of Trump is only one of them, you know, uh, and, and so on. But uh, listen, all of a sudden Trump says, Jerusalem is Israel. Everybody was stunned, right? He gave Jerusalem back to capital city, which automatically means that uh, that Israel also is a country. If you have a capital, you got to have a country. So in one sweep, what did he do, right? Israel, the capital of Israel is Jerusalem, right? And Jerusalem belongs to the Jews. And then all of a sudden he throws in Golan. You know what I'm saying? Like, what is this? You know? I mean, who ever heard of a president saying that, you know? Uh, you know, look, he himself doesn't realize who he is. Although it's interesting what he said, I'm the chosen one. He made that statement, you know, but he meant in one way, but he has no idea that he just slipped up and in terms of a certain idea. Like I told you, you know, he's, he's a messianic figure of Edom, Esau, and he is. What a defiance. Unbelievable how he's taken them all on, you know, and that's a messianic figure. Anyway, that's after the Mashiach. Yeah, that means the world already is gone. There's no civilizations anymore. Then it's called the seven thousandth year. That's after the world will have changed, uh, and uh, and that is the beginning uh, toward the uh, uh, production of ilm uh, habo. That's a whole different uh, level of uh, of reality. You know, we're just, we're, you, our, the reality we want is a, is a Mashiach himself. And we don't even know what that means. Like I'm trying to show, you know, we don't even know, understand what that means, what's coming up. <coughs> you know, <coughs> you know, <coughs> and I could give you more Chazal, but it just, it's astounding to realize what is going to happen in the next couple of years. It's nothing we can fathom, you know. It's, I, I like to give the example, so you take a guy who lived in 1840. BCE, not, not CE, 1840 BCE. What was the guy? Some, some Egyptian farmer working on the land, right? And you take him, you put him in a time machine, right? And all of a sudden he lands on, he lands up <coughs> on Fifth Avenue, you know, in Manhattan, right? In Manhattan, you know, or, you know, in, uh, in uh, today's date. It, it, it collapsed. He could never assimilate this. It's not a world he can possibly grasp. It is so radically different from what he knows. It's the same idea. And the change of his world is nothing compared to the change of our world when the Mashiach arrives. It's nothing. That's, that's how, that's what kind of incredible change there will be. You know, we can't even imagine what that is. So, get ready. God's going to come in and just take you out and just bring you to the, as they say, to the promised land. And it's going to happen soon. You know? Yeah, go ahead. Um, 
What can he what? On the word quick thoughts is an oxymoron. <laughs> no. I don't really have quick thoughts, I have long thoughts. You know, <clears throat> but um <clears throat> I mean, it's happening, you know, it's, um, <clears throat> there are things that are happening, you know. Look, just the, the upcoming elections of, uh, in Israel is uh, historical. It never happened before that they couldn't put a coalition together. And what, what is God saying? If you think about it, you can interpret it this way. God is saying, listen, you know, you can have elections, no problem. But your ability to rule over the Jewish people and impede their progress towards spirituality, I'm stopping it. That's really what it means, if you think about it. You know, it's, you know, it's if you interpret what that happened, forget about the historical business, you know. What God is saying, simple. Fine, you want to make elections? No problem. But don't think you're going to have a government. Why? Because your ability to destroy the ability of the Jewish people to come back to me, I'm stopping. And therefore there's no coalition. Isn't that interesting? That's the message. Now the question is, okay, what happens next? You see what I'm saying? But people don't interpret it that way. They just say, well, they didn't make a coalition. You know, of course not. Do you know what that is? That the exact number they needed, they were one short of 61. If you know what happened, right? What are the odds? They're just one short, and therefore Lieberman got all that power? You know, you mean they couldn't get, come up with one guy? And he would have had a government. No. Because you, you, no, you no longer deal with normal average politics. You know, it's like, it's like with Trump, you know? You know, he's running in 16 major heavyweights. And, you know, and he comes out and says, I'm running. And everybody laughs because he's going to provide the comic relief for the whole elections, you know? And all of a sudden, one by one, you began to realize, you know, it was astounding, you know, uh, because God decided, I need to change America. Not only for America, I need to change it for Israel. Because if America wins back the respect in the globe, then whoever they respect, everybody's going to be running to do business with them, which is what's happening, you see. So the rise of America precedes the rise of Israel, because they're the ones that will assist, you see. It's all part of the Hezbollah, as they say, you know? Yes, Jonathan? I have a question. How much were you afraid? It's only... I can't hear you, what? Uh, how much were you afraid? That how much what? Were you afraid, yeah, if a war would happen. Currently, things are heating up in the north. Half an hour ago, we had already a little bit bigger conflict. With 40, 40 rockets, it is a <coughs> And let me say, a war breaks out, which is very realistic, before the election. How do you interpret that? Interpret a war before the elections? Well, you have to remember one thing. In order for this to come about, there are three things that have to happen in Israel in order for the people to begin thinking of moving to Israel, you know. 
The first thing is that Israel has to be a land of safety. It has to be safe, you see. And Israel is not safe, obviously, because they're surrounded by people who hate them, want to destroy them, see. So Trump is already on the move to stop Iran. And that's the biggest enemy, right? And Israel also will take out Iran. They're both uh, on record as saying that we cannot allow you, you know. So it's the same concept. God has to make Israel a safe place in order to allow the Jews to come back, right? This, you, what you are watching really is the uh, actions that God is taking to make it safe. So if there is a war, right, you know, it's, which is, of course would be terrible, but ultimately speaking, you know, Israel told Hezbollah that if you attack us, we are going to take our gloves off. And we are going to set you guys back 50 years. We're going to send you back 50 years, which is what they have to do. So they can destroy Lebanon. Once they destroy Lebanon, right, then that's the end of Hezbollah. Once Iran is destroyed, and that is very interesting to watch, you know, um, uh, then Israel can then achieve a tremendous amount of safety. And besides, not only that, then people will think about coming and moving to Israel because there's no enemies anymore. You know, what you're watching is all of that is, is a very slow process. There are many Arab countries that now want to do business with Israel, which is incredible. Think about that. It never happened before. Israel, right, 50 years ago, it was the pariah of nations. And now they want to do business with Israel. Even Saudi Arabia, which is a spearhead of Yishmael, wants to do business with, with, uh, with uh, Israel and so on, you know. So you're watching this slow progression of making Israel a safe place. And one of the ways is that they're going to tip their hand. If Hezbollah does start, right, then, uh, I mean, Israel will unleash, have to, have to, and destroy Lebanon. You see? Hamas, Hamas anyway, there's nothing there. It's astounding why Israel allows Hamas to do what they want. But all of this is in the, uh, the, um, uh, th the theme of all this, is to make Israel safe. That's the first requirement. The second requirement is prosperity. Israel must become a prosperous nation, which it is not. There is a segment of the population that's making a lot of money, right? But they just came out with a statistic a couple of months ago that 1.8 million people of Israel is below the poverty line. Not at the poverty line or above, below. Excuse me, that's almost 30% of the country. That's crazy, you know. Uh, Israel is prosperous to a certain segment, but most people struggle terribly. The cost of living, the bureaucracy, the regulations. It's a very difficult place to make it, you know. So clearly that has to change in order for people to say, okay, I'm coming. The third thing that has to change, is the most difficult of all, is the concept of religiosity. Israel has to become a much greater spiritual place. And they can't, because there's an enormous amount of forces that wish to impede the religiosity of the Jewish people. And I mean really, you know, and it really it's not hard. You can make, I once mentioned, you can make Israel a tremendous spiritual place without any coercion at all, you know. And I once mentioned how there are many Kirov organizations that are very good in making people, turning them on, you know, like Rabbi Poston, right? But the problem is they have no money, right? right. <laughs> uh, 
<coughs> what happens if Israel, there are many organizations, great organizations, Arachim, you know, uh, what do you call it, Levli Achim, Babich, whatever, that are great. They do a great job making, turning people on, you know, with valid arguments. They don't coerce them, but they have valid, very valid uh, ways to, to do it, you know. The problem is they have no money. Well, what happens if Israel gives millions of dollars to some of these organizations? They will have money to spread what they think is spirituality, you know. And nobody's forcing anybody, but just let them do their thing. You see, it doesn't take much to really to make Jewish people religious. They have a pintaliyid. Every Jew has a spark of the divine, you know. You just have to know how to reach them. And there are many other ideas, but it's within the realm. You just need to get rid of these people that hate religion. They want to secularize everybody, you see, and it's all part of the why they want to put the Haredim in the army. I'm not going into the argument now, you know, whatever, but certainly it's uh, even the, they admit that the army will secularize you. But anyway, uh, so Israel has to become religious, spiritual, but in a nice way, in a mild way, not in any kind of coercion or threat, none of that stuff. But there are ways to do it. Yeah, there are ways to do it. And there have been hundreds of thousands of people that have returned in a, in a, in a nice way. Whether it be hotels or whatever and so on, you know. That has to happen. And that is the most important thing. Why? Because what is the redemption really? The redemption isn't more cash in the bank. Right? That's not what redemption is or a better house on the hill. Right? Or a great job or more vacation. You know, no. The redemption is the return of the Jewish people to God. That's what it is. There is nothing else but that. You see, that's what the Geul is. To, that Israel returns back to the Torah, right? And back to their Father in Heaven. You know, where there's an unbelievable reunification. And, uh, and so on, you know, that's really what it's all about. Everything else is irrelevant. If you look at the Torah, every, almost every other Pasuk, is where Moshe Rabbeinu says, and you'll do the mitzvahs, and you do the chukim. It's like every other pasuk he's saying this, you know. That's the geula, you know. God says, I want everybody back. I want my children back. You know what I'm saying? They're almost gone. They're all over, you see. So there has to come a time when these people who impede and really block all the ability of people to bring people back, not, remember, not coercion at all, you know, they have to be get, gotten rid of, and they will, they're next. That's when you know we're on our way. <coughs> when the, these people, the Erev Rav, when they fall, they are the last peoples that uh, will basically fall before the redemption. <coughs> but that is a third requirement, and that is the main requirement, is there has to be the ability of the Jewish people to come back to God. And that is spirituality in a pleasant, nice way. That's the re beginning of redemption. And if you see that happen, then you realize that the Mashiach is right around the corner. You see? So that's what we're waiting for. You see, so those are the three requirements uh, for a Mashiach to come, you know. Uh, but remember what I said, you know. Mashiach can't come to a, a, a nation which is in the dirt. You know, it can't, can't do that. It, it, you know, it is so incongruous to who he is that it just cannot be, you see. 
So could you imagine what that is? That the Jewish people will come back to God, you know, do the mitzvahs and, and really know their Torah be incredible, you know. And those people who want to obstruct it, they will be gone. Their power will be removed and destroyed. That has to happen, you see. And it is happening. Each, each segment is slowly happening, you know. But like I say, God has a timetable, you know. He's got all day, as they say, you know. Not really, but, you know. And that's what's happening. So that's it. Those are the three requirements. And each one of those things is happening now. Think about that. Every one. You know. I'm on the same track as, as you just mentioned. You used the word change uh, two, three or four times in your, in your, in your last answer. And a, a few... Uh, uh, lectures ago, I asked you a question. I said, what would it take to bring the people in from the USA, bring, the, bring all the Jews back from America? And your answer was, Israel has to change. Correct. Correct. Okay? Yes. And do you feel, do you feel that, that that change is right around the corner, like, you know, a little over two weeks away? The, 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 the beginning, the spark of that, of that change, of that, of that Let change? Let me... Uh, let me answer the question this way. Uh, I cannot believe that God is going to wait another four years. I, I just don't believe it. Why? 11 million Jews are gone. There are 14 million Jews in the world. It's ridiculous how little there are, right? Le 14 million Jewish, Jews, you know, it's hard to believe because every, they're always in the newspapers. You know, it's hard to believe there's only 14 million Jews, you know, they're because they're so prominent. But um, they're disappearing. <clears throat> it never happened before. The, the, the conflict that a Jew had was always suffer for God or not. You know, what would he do? Become a Christian, you know, and so on. But, but today we see Jews are disappearing. They're, dis they're disappearing. Judaism is disappearing. I mean, there are five million Jews in America, right? There are millions of Jews in France. They have many Jews in France. Then you have South America, you know. They're slowly integrating assimilating into marriage. The intermarriage rate in America now is one, one uh, was it, uh, seven out of ten people intermarry. You see? So how do you bring them back? It's a mystery. Because a guy marries a woman, let's say, and she's a goy, a goyish kids. So what's he going to do? Divorce his wife? It's very hard to see how it's going to happen, you know? But can you imagine another four years for, for millions of people to disappear? For, you know, it's, you know, uh, how long can it continue where God will allow these people and their evil people to destroy the ability of the Jewish people to come back to God? How long will he allow that? I, can't, it's, I cannot believe that he's going to allow the government now who are anti-Haredi. It's, it's not just anti-Haredi, you know, it's anti-God. You know, Haredim are just people who are religious. It's anti-God. They don't want God mixed into Israeli culture. It's very simple, you know. How long will God submit to that? You know, he's got his reasons for that, whatever they are, why he's allowing that to occur. But after a while, God says, Dayenu, enough. And all of a sudden, the world shakes. That's exactly what happened with Trump, 
It's exactly how with Berlin Wall collapsing, communism collapsing, you know. They can only go on as long as God allows them to. But the moment he says enough, it's over with. You know, because you're dealing with the most powerful force in all creation and so on. So the, I would answer your question, I cannot believe that God would allow these people who are either anti-religious or completely apathetic, not antipathy, but uh, apathetic to religion, that he will allow them another four years to do their damage because they are destroying Israel. I mean, they have gay pride praise now in Israel. It's just beyond belief. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, because it's these people because they want to be like the goyim. They want to do everything the goyim do, you know, and so on, you know. It's hard for me to believe that 40 million Jews, 11 million, million Jews are gone, that he's going to allow Israel to fall. And they are falling, you know. So That's basically, uh, my speaker is close. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I believe, and I hope I'm right, is that this election will be significant. Something is going to happen, you know, and it's going to shock everybody. But it, there has to be a turnaround. Something has to happen, you know. One quick, quick question. When the Arab Rav go down, yeah. and is that the same thing as the Sutton is finished? Yes. Mm -hmm. His greatest, the, Arab, the Sutton's greatest soldiers are the Arab Rav. Mm -hmm. Nobody is as bad as the Arab Rav. Do you know why? Do you know why? Because the Arab Rav are Jews. And nobody no. believes that a Jew wants to destroy them. Because he's my brother, right? Nobody believes that a Jew wants to destroy another Jew. Not that he wants to destroy them physically, of course not. But he wants to destroy Zayn al-Mahabba. It's, it's even worse, you know. So therefore the Ava of Rav is like a tumor, cancer. Why doesn't the body cure itself? Because it doesn't see the cancer cell as an other, as an enemy, you see. So therefore eventually the cancer kills. It's when the body wakes up and says, hey, you're not like me. I'm gonna, you know, I, I, you know, I gotta get rid of you, so on. The Arab are Jews, but they are Jews that are trying to destroy the religion and spirituality of other Jews. Of course they cover it up and say, not really, we respect them. It's all nonsense, because you should know one thing, God is not a fool. You know, a guy, because God, what God does, which most people don't realize, is that if you contributed to anything which is bad or harmful, even if you're 10 degrees removed from that actual harm, you are held culpable to that extent. People don't realize that, you see. I'll give you one example, like the Congress, right? They let these three women, right, issue anti-Semitic remarks, and they did nothing, right? Okay, but they don't realize that they are headed for incredible problems. Why? Because your job, right, was to quiet these people. It's incredible. Why don't you come out against them and say, how dare you? We are, we're not even, we're just 75 years away from the Holocaust. And you're already talking like another Holocaust, you know? So what the House should have done is immediately censure these people and throw them off the committees. But they didn't. They allowed them. You don't realize they are culpable in the eyes of God. Yes. Whatever the grade level is, and whatever the distance is for the crime that they committed, right? they will be held uh, guilty. They have no idea how bad that's going to be. You see? So people don't realize that a person can be guilty even if he's many factors away 
from the actual crime. God keeps count. And he keeps a very good count. He knows exactly what your contribution is to the crime. You see, he knows, you see. And he's going to confront the Congress, the Senate, all those guys. They have no idea what they face God, what's going to happen to them. They're going to wish they were never born. You see? What? Yeah, and therefore that's what I'm saying. People don't realize, and God keeps count. You see, and unfortunately, you have the air of your Rav that tries to obstruct religion, spirituality. You know, in some measure. You know, but it's not only that. Even if a guy could say, "Well, I never obstructed," right? The guy can say, "I never did anything to stop." But here's the mistake they made, because if you are in power. You have a responsibility to further God and his people. You see, they forgot about that. So even if you could say, well, I never stopped it. You know, I never went out against the Haredim. But you don't understand something. That's what you can tell them. If, if you have a job in the government where you have power, then your job is to not only stop the other people, you need to help them become more spiritual. See, they don't look at that. Say, well, it's not my job. What are you talking about? It is your job. See, that's what God keeps count. And they don't understand that. You see? And that's where they all get incriminated. Because even if you didn't stop them, even if you don't do anything actively to bring God's people back to God, right? Why don't you at least assist them? Because you're in power. You see what I'm saying? That's where they get caught. So you're guilty of apathy. Correct. Exactly. You're guilty of apathy, let alone if you obstruct and you destroy and you harm. Sure, <clears throat> of course. Let me tell you something. The worst nightmare that the world will ever have experienced. You know when that is? The great day of judgment. That is going to be a nightmare that you can't even begin. Because God is going to come with a, a fine tooth comb, exactly, you know. And so on, yeah. <clears throat> that, that, that's not because God wants to get you, not at all. You know? Yeah. But there's justice and there's justice. And we cannot even imagine the guilt of these people. Because if they are in a. For instance, uh, you know, just an example immigration. You know? 300 people die every day of drugs in the United States because it's imported from Mexico, right? So how can you come out and say, well, let them in? Let all the criminals and the drugs. So God's going to say, excuse me, you see that guy who just died? You are guilty of that. Because you who are sitting in the Congress could have stopped it. You see, forget about Trump. What's that to do with Trump? American citizens are dying. You represent your constituents. Your job is to stop it. You're not stopping it. You're on the contrary. You're voting that they should be allowed to come in. You know, what are you, crazy? They don't, they, it's, it's astounding how foolish these people are. Because they don't realize once you become part of the government, you are held culpable. Because you, you have the power. And culpability means not to aid and abet the crime, not only to assist people to avoid the crime, you are culpable. You know, God is not a fool. He knows exactly what people are doing. And they don't realize how guilty they are. That whole Congress is going to sit in front of God someday. And you know, it's going to be the greatest nightmare they've ever experienced. Why they allowed this to happen to the Jews. 
and not defend the Jews after 75 years of a Holocaust? I mean, how many, you know, you can't even say, well, it's a thousand years ago. What thousand years? You know, I'm not even talking about the other people, the revisionist guys and, and all the people who really did it. You know, Ukraines and the, and the, the Nazis. And, well, I wasn't even going to that, you know, but I'm just saying people do not realize. That's why, be very careful if you take a government job. <laughs> That's your nightmare. Because then you become responsible and culpable. You see? Yeah, that's right. You know, and then, because, you know, if you could have done it, should have done it. But anyway, that's basically uh, what, what, what hopefully is coming up very shortly. You know what I'm saying? Thank you very much. Okay. Yeah.